You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. You're listening to the Pennsylvania Woodsman, powered by Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network. This show is driven to provide relatable hunting and outdoor content in the Keystone State and surrounding Northeast. On this show, you'll hear an array of perspectives from biologists and industry professionals to average Joes with a lifetime of knowledge. All centered around values aiming to be better outdoorsmen and women, both in the field as well as home and daily life. No clicks, no self-interest, just delight in the pursuit of creation. And now, your host, the pride of Pennsylvania, the man who shoots straight and won't steer you wrong, Johnny Appleseed himself, Mitchell Shirk. Mitchell Shirk. Mitchell Shirk. Mitchell Shirk. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Hope you are doing well. I uh, have to say it has been busy, busy here. I feel like it's always busy, busy. I feel like almost every time that I try to come down and do an intro and get this week's episode out, I feel like it's back and forth of something's going busy. It's just different the season of the year. Right now, this time of year, uh, I'm like playing catch-up on all the things I neglected through the fall. You know, amidst doing, you know hunting and job and being family oriented like all the stuff around my house that I neglected Uh, I've got a back porch project that I've been uh, dragging my feet on working there's there's stuff to do with that but I just had other stuff throughout the house that's just a mess like I'm looking here in my basement I've got stuff everywhere I've got closets that have continually gotten cluttered and cluttered my current hunting spot I have a I have a spot in my house, like many of us do, that's just designated for my hunting stuff. It's stuff. There's stuff everywhere. There's no organization. Uh, one thing that I'm like nervous about, I have a case that I have SD cards in for trail cameras. Cannot find that to save my life. So I'm going to have to have just a few solid weeks of whatever little bit of time I can find uh, or, or make and just try to clean stuff up, organize, and just keep on grinding. It's hard right now. You know, I, I think about when season ends, you know, I'm still hyped up, thinking about stuff I want to do for next year and everything else. And I uh, I have all this big, th- you know, grand thoughts and ambitions uh, from scouting and preparation. And I've got trails I want to cut and, you know, areas that I'd like to plant stuff and all kinds of stuff. I start formulating these things and then I start looking at the weekends and the time I have available and you know the days are short right now so it's almost non-existent that I'll be able to get done with work and get anything done outside. And weekends, man, I feel every single weekend in January we had something uh whether it was the family or my wife had something that I was watching the kids. I look ahead in, in February, and it's not a lot different. I feel like back and forth, we're planning stuff. And then every once in a while, I'll, I'll have a Saturday where we don't have anything planned. And I think, man, that'd be a great opportunity to go and cut some trees and do this and do that and go take a walk and scout. And, and I I just, there's a voice in my head screaming, do something that you've really should get done it's the whole want to versus have to ordeal and i man it's just a struggle and i'm hoping that i'm not the only one that's that's feeling this way i get frustrated i can't lie i've get times where i just want to push other things off that you know in my mind are nowhere near as important but in all reality it's the way it is, and I don't want to miss any opportunity. I take time away from my kids. Uh, it, this has been fun watching these little knuckleheads grow up, and I don't want to miss that opportunity of of them just because I was doing something with a deer. I was I was reading. Yeah, that's one thing I'm really trying to be better at is being more consistent in how often I read my Bible. I, I'm trying to do it more consistently. I've always read, but never on a consistent basis. And another thing I'm not good at is I'm not good at remembering exactly 
where I read stuff, but I do remember stuff. And basically, you know, the the piece of scripture I read that I believe was in the book of Matthew was that uh, the farmer waits for his fruit and waits for his harvest. And, uh, you know, there might be pain and suffering, being patient and doing things the hard way and the long way. Uh, but in the long, in the long run, uh, you know, you get into it, what you, uh, you get out of it, what you put into it was the, the premise. Of course, I'm not reiterating, but I think about that and I think about a lot of stuff in life, how that applies. And even in the hunting world, uh, that's so very, very true. So, you know, if I'm, Speaking to anybody that's experiencing similar things in their life with the chaos and they're they're feeling they're they're you know they're pulled one way that they want to do stuff to get ready for hunting or stuff they enjoy, just enjoy it. You know, let it be a marathon, let it be a sprint. I'm trying to tell myself that. And, you know, every time that I do that, I've been amazed at how wonderful I've been blessed. Uh, so yeah, that's my little uh, little hopefully uh, pick me up for this cold wintry miserable weather we've had i say miserable i actually don't mind the winter i don't mind the cold but man makes more work going through firewood so on to this week's episode i have a guest talking about one of my favorite things we're talking about things oriented to land management and stuff and we are talking with frank brock from morse nurseries and, and I've had a, a, an array of people come onto the show and pick their brains. You know, last week we just had John Teeter on the show. And John Teeter from Whitetail Landscapes. And we were talking about bedding areas and cutting and strategy. But we've had a, a, an array of episodes revolving around food plots and bedding areas and hunting strategies and planting strategies and, you know, habitat management, yada, yada, yada. And... While there's definitely some parallels between a lot of different people, there's also some uh, there's some disagreeing uh, disagreeing point of views, or there's different philosophies and approaches to things. And that doesn't mean that one's right and one's wrong. I think it all matters how you're approaching stuff. And and I'm bringing this up because we're talking with Frank. We're talking about planting trees, successful planting, you know, whether that's uh, a mass producing tree, a conifer for cover, a shrub species, something along those lines when it comes to planting and reintroducing stuff. And there's, there's a, first of all, there's a a host of things that Morse Nursery has to offer. Uh, A lot of good quality stuff. And these guys do their homework. They've got great genetics. And they're sharing their point of views on how to, to handle this. And I, I will say one thing that I've very, I, I've kind of like had this mindset that, you know, that that's not one of my main priorities is planting new trees. Like a, a lot of properties that I've walked or, you know, hunted on myself and had stuff like planting trees. It's not that it's not something that would be good for the landscape, whether that's a mass producing tree or you know whatever but i don't prioritize it as highly as i should i think well the lowest holes in the bucket are reducing canopy or creating more food or changing whatever on a property and think yeah the 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 trees the things like that that'll there'll be a time and place where i lay my foundation and then I'm going to add to that by putting these trees in. And my mindset's always been it takes a really long time to get trees established and get any return out of them. And that's one thing I've probably been wrong at because on the contrary to my logic is with good management, you can get quicker return than that. Uh, but, you know, one thing I learned in school, and uh, I, I remember this is the best time to plant a tree was 10 years ago. Uh, the second best time is now and waiting to plant trees later in, uh, in the, the, the plan of your property. Well, that's going to have consequences too. So I'm just kind of rambling about the tree concepts and everything else. But, um, we, we 
we bring Frank on, and he opened my eyes to a lot of things when it comes to tree plots and nut and fruit-producing trees to the point where I'm hoping that I can orient some stuff at some of the places I hunt and do the exact same thing and maybe learn a thing or two. What was I doing wrong? And I I, I kind of picked up some of the things I've done wrong in the past through this episode. He's going to talk about settings and establishment and soil and management and some strategies involved with and how he might orient certain uh, tree species and uh, segmentations of a property with, you know, certain aspects of, uh, of their catalog. So really great episode, a lot of detail information here and, uh, really enjoyed having Frank on. He's a really knowledgeable guy and I'm looking forward to picking his brain and diving into a few more topics in the future. Um, one of the things uh, I wanted to mention too, is Frank gave a code that you can go onto the website, Morse Nurseries, you go onto their website, and any order that you get and you use the uh, code WOODSMAN10, you'll get 10% off of an order. So check that out, and I know we make that announcement during this episode, but I wanted to throw that out there. Um, one episode, uh, yeah, one episode. One thing I wanted to announce to you guys too, um, I got an email from Jan Kristen. And if you guys listened to the episode we did back in fall with uh, Jan and a couple other folks from the Rough Grouse Society, you know, we had a very, very good conversation with some knowledgeable foresters and wildlife specialists and, you know, hunting advocates, grouse habitat advocates. And a great, great episode. By all means, check that out if you haven't listened to that. But Jan reached out and he wanted me to share that the their chapter is doing their big nine-month raffle right now. And if that's something that you'd like to buy a raffle ticket and support, um, you can do so one of two ways. Number one, you can call or text Jan, and that his number is 717-940-1483, or go over to their Facebook page. It's the Rough Grouse Society's dash south mountain slash charles bechtel chapter so like i said that's down here in the southeastern part of pennsylvania but i know they've got like a thousand plus tickets to sell and they want to get it sold by september uh great cause that chapter's doing wonderful things and i wanted to make sure we uh we said our our shout out to them and support them how we can because I, i like what they're doing and i think you guys should support them um yeah, so I think that does uh, as much as we need for getting ready for this episode. Last thing, Radix hunting. Guys, I've been talking all year about Radix hunting, and, uh, you know, I've been bringing my cameras in right now, but there's nothing wrong with doing some scouting work and putting cameras out now. The Putting lithium batteries in Radix cameras, the way I had them set up, I had them last all year long, no problems. Excellent image quality. Bulletproof simple cameras is really what you're getting. They're not hard to set up. They're not complex. There's not a million gadgets and gizmos. I use the, the Scout Tech app for the M-Cell, uh, M-Core cell cams. And really great experience with them. Easy to set up. So check out Radix Hunting. A lot they have to offer. If you're somebody who likes to feed deer, they offer awesome uh, feeders. Check out those feeders and everything else that Radix Hunting has to offer. And Huntworth. Huntworth is clothing that keeps you warm. Right now, I've been wearing my heat boost clothing, even though I'm not hunting, just because uh, the the breakup layer that it has to break wind and really retain your body heat is impressive. It's different than stuff I've used before. I was also really happy too when I hunted with it in the late season. It's quiet uh, <clears throat> now. Late season hunting, I think when you've got cold, still days, sound travels much further than normal without the leaves and everything else on. And uh, there was no concern of me moving clothing against clothing or clothing against something else that I had in my hunting arsenal to stay quiet. And right now they've got a winter clearance sale. Um, numbers between 20 and 50% off, I believe. 
So go to huntworthgear.com, check out what they have to offer, check out the winter clearance sale, probably one of the biggest sales of the year. <clears throat> awesome, awesome opportunity. Go check out their products. Now let's get to this episode with Frank Brock. Joining me on this week's show, I've got Frank Brock. More nurseries, I believe, is how you pronounce that. Frank, thanks for joining us. Hey, not a problem, man. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Yeah, it's good to connect with you here. Um, I think with uh, your expertise in the world of habitat, plants, shrubs, and, and wildlife, um, I think it's going to be very, very quick that you and I go down some rabbit holes here. So I want to I do a good job and make sure that you, uh, you get a good introduction and you know, tell people where you're from, who you are, what you're doing. Yeah. So again, my name's Frank. I'm with a company called Morse Nursery. We're a plant nursery out of Battle Creek, and Michigan, and West Lafayette, Indiana. Um, I specialize in habitat planning and design for whitetails, turkeys, upland birds. Um, but our focus is on fruit and nut-bearing trees, as well as shrubs. And we actually utilize these to create better habitat with a better food source over a longer period of time. So we're a nationwide nursery. Um, we ship a lot out to Pennsylvania due to our colder climates in the Michigan area. So our genetics are pretty hardy um, to the surrounding environment that you guys are in and uh, excited to kind of dive into to why that makes sense. Well, I'm curious from the first off, you know, a lot of people, it, it's amazing how many times you start talking to people about improving habitat. And if they're, if they're very baseline introduction or novice, the, the thing that people think of right away is planting, planting trees. And it's a fantastic process, and it's a fantastic implementation. Sometimes it's fitting a square peg in a round hole. But in all in all, planting trees, planting shrubs under the right application is a good process. But I think a lot of people, they don't really know uh, the nuts and bolts behind the trees that they're picking. You know, a lot of the time it's going to be from mom and pop nursery down the street, or, you know, maybe they, they know a guy who knows a guy who does an annual tree sale and it's supporting such and such a thing. And, uh, they think they're implementing something that's going to be really positive to their landscape. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but I'm kind of curious from your perspective, um, under those, those trees that you're talking about, uh, nut bearing trees, shrubs, yada, yada, you name it. Tell me a little bit about what goes into your thought process of what makes the, the, the prescription best for properties across a lot of the stuff that you work with. So when it really comes down to the kind of like why we're a little different and where my focus lies is because we actually have our own genetic parent trees and we hand collect the nuts from these. We take the cuttings for grafting from the fruit trees from these parent trees. So since we have these, we can actually tell you, you know, how long a tree could produce for, what to expect at its full maturity versus us just going out and wholesaling someone else's trees. So when you're working with a company like us, nationwide, we come from a direct source with our genetics and we're able to give you a quality product that we know is going to produce in colder environments or, you know, a little more south as well. So southern trees, the rule of thumb is they can't really do as well up north versus a northern tree can usually travel kind of south. But when it comes to the whole thing, you know, Morse Nursery isn't one to just sell you a tree. We kind of want to sell you a process so that you're efficient in your first planting because we know everyone doesn't have the planting experience that we might. So we kind of want to help you guys out a little bit. And we have some different products that we pair with our trees, which make a big impact for my clients who typically live a couple hours away from their property. They can't get there all the time. But it's our tree and shrub survival kit. So it's one thing to plant a tree or plant a shrub, you know, with a long-term goal of what it's going to bring to your property, but it's also protecting it from the wildlife, the wind, drought, making sure it's fertilized and all that other things that could happen to it in that time frame. So with our survival kit, we take out the wind, we can take out rub and browse from deer with our tree tube, a five foot tall, five inch wide tube, or our shrub tube that's two and a half foot tall, five inches wide. It also would come with a weed mat. It's a three by three foot area, double sided plastic. And this is what's interesting. The biggest problem is trying to get your trees watered, especially if you go four to five weeks without rain. So our mat actually doesn't have holes in it. So if you're getting consistent rain every four to five weeks, 
that mat will hold that moisture underneath of it that time. So it buys you, you know, from going out there with a big tank and watering all your trees that you planted on your remote hunting property. Um, and then the last part of that is our fertilizer pack. It's a two-year fertilizer pack. It's not going to burn up a young tree's roots, but it's going to provide that as much of the fertilizer you guys spray does end up in groundwater. So if we can avoid that, uh, we've taken care of a lot of problems that could occur. And for every person that puts a survival kit with any of our trees, we actually guarantee them as well. It's because we know it works. Wow, that's a lot to go, a lot to unpack there. So I mean, let's, let's yeah. for the for the first part of this. I mean, uh, whether you're coming from the agriculture standpoint, the forestry side, the the tree planting side, whatever it is, um, it all starts with the soil, right? And you know that's gotta, that's got to be um, uh, at the fir- the forefront of what you're doing in, in your planning process. So. Um, before we get into the nuts and bolts of, you know, species and strategies and everything else that could go on, just walk me through your thought process when you go to a property and we have the goal of implementing some of your products on the farm and we want to uh, maximize their potential for whatever application that, you know, they might need. Talk a little bit about your thought process and from, from the angle of approaching it with the soil. Correct. Yeah. So soil is number one, as you said, um, but that's going to depend on the type of tree as well. So for instance, chestnuts, they like a more well-drained soil versus we have some different apple trees or pear trees on M111 rootstock that can handle some wetter conditions. Same with our oaks. We have different white oaks that can do, you know, wetter conditions or, you know, drier conditions, but it depends on the soil type. So you can't, like you said, you can't just fit a chestnut tree on your property just because you want to. It's got to make sense soil type-wise. It's got to be able to handle those conditions. And you can always start with a good soil test. I don't know who you who you usually recommend, but I like to go through local universities in the area as they're most familiar with the property in most cases or the soil types in the area. And that's going to give you a good baseline for them how we can attack the different areas you might want to plant. Because in a lot of cases, a lot of the guys I'm meeting with already have a food plot established. And, you know, they're looking to elevate that food plot into the next level with the trees or, you know, build up a bedding area and an understory that they've just clear cut to kind of go along with their regeneration. So if you can have a good baseline of what kind of soil types you're dealing with, then we can obviously apply the right plants and shrubs to be successful. Absolutely. So fruit trees, you're you're talking about implementing them on the on food plots. Um, you know, I, I, again, you brought up soil testing. Uh, universities are a great option. You know, f- for those of you who listen and you want to get a soil sample, I, I've talked about that a couple options. You know, first of all, Penn State Lab does a great job. You can send them away pretty cheap. You can tell them what you're planning, what you want to do, and you can get some recommendations back from them. And uh, it, it's a really good option for you. You can do it at local feed stores. You know, I've, I've you know, told people too, if you ever take soil samples, uh, I send a lot to Spectrum Labs in Ohio, but there's, there's so many different quality labs and, you know, that's one point. And then the next is getting good recommendations and, uh, universities are usually one of the best in my opinion, as far as giving you unbiased information. However, um, you know, specialized, uh, interest, individuals that have a good experience, maybe an elevated experience in certain fortes like Frank, um, might have a little bit of a different perspective. And it's good to kind of bounce multiple options and thought processes off of people when it comes to, you know, getting your your best case scenario. But you brought up food plots and you, you brought up about enhancing food plots. So I want to try to break down as best we can, because like I said, I think we could probably go down some serious rabbit holes here. But when you talk about soft mass versus hard mass versus shrub component versus all the different things, and if you go on your website, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's it's morsenursery.com? Morsenursery.com, correct. Yeah, and if you go on there, and I've browsed through, there is a, there's a lot to choose from. And, you know, if you're somebody who's kind of, uh, you know, new to this, or even if you have some experience, but you're looking at all the different things, it's a little bit overwhelming. So l- let me just, you know, let's take Frank's perspective. Frank, how do you look at the products you have? And, you know, you brought up the food plot scenario. How are you typically looking at improving that food plot scenario with the array of products that you have to offer? Yeah, so you make a good point. You know, we really can improve food plots. I'm not against food plots. Let's get that out there first. I'm all for them. Um, I think you should 
at a minimum, be doing a chicory clover mix around the trees you plant to give them a nice nitrogen source, as well as create browse. So I'm all for food plots. Um, but when it comes to improving them a little bit, offer something that's a one-time plant that's going to continue to give to you year after year and more each year after that. So looking at your different options, it's really about driving diversity on the property versus your neighbor. You know, everyone does have apple trees. That's probably the most common. A lot of people have oaks. Um, and the deer are going to eat those. Don't get me wrong. If it's on the ground, the deer are going to eat it. But we can be more diverse with things like chestnuts, things like persimmon, things like pear. Um, and what's great about that I mentioned earlier is that we maintain all these mother genetic trees. So we can, we actually have chestnuts that drop in August, some that drop in September, some in October, November, December, and on. So you can literally have hard mass dropping from August all the way into January with our food sources. And then we can provide a nice foliage of summer browse with our different shrubs that creates, create nice, like thicket bedding areas in the late season. So kind of like a two-faced approach to it. Yeah, I really like that. You know, diversity is huge. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of different schools of thought. And like you said, you know, there's a lot of different examples of diversity. You know, I talk about food plots, guys. You know that I, I work with Altamechico at Vitalize Seed. Diversity is in that food plot mix. I think he has about 14 different uh, species in that mix, all at the right appropriations and all timing and maturities at a lot of different, you know, <clears throat> throughout the entire season. There's a lot of biodiversity going on there. There's a lot of good positive things for the soil and ultimately a lot of good positive things from a food plot perspective for deer. You know, there's uh, the diversity from a bigger scale, you know, and the way I always described it to a lot of people is when you look at canopy, you look at um, a field edge right next to uh, maybe an overgrown field that might have uh, lowland grasses, shrub component next to you know a conifer stand, and maybe that canopy height is 60 feet next to hardwood uh, canopy. Maybe that's over 100 feet, and you, you stagger canopies, you're going to get different levels and ages of plant classes, and that's a really, really important point of diversity. And I think one thing that, uh, you know, nurseries and planting trees that you have to offer is you're talking about providing unique food sources at different ages at different dropping components to add attractiveness to your property frank am i missing any points you think you'd like to bring up based on the diversity of plants and trees and species like that yeah and a good you're you're covering it very well but a good thing to note is you know when those ag if, you, if you're one of those island properties and you're surrounded by ag field when the ag's all gone that's dropping in November and December on your property, that's a high-carb, high-protein valued food source that they're going to keep coming back for. So you can you can stage out a property where, you know, the early season, August, September, we can build some diversity and let them have zero pressure while they kind of enjoy that food source, right? And then once that food source starts dropping, we can start bringing them in closer to our different hunting areas or our different kill plots that we like to stay in those pathways to them. We can hunt those a lot more successfully because now we know there's no other food source dropping around me. And November through January, I'm going to have, you know, chestnut, persimmon, pear, and apple all on the ground at the same time. Mm, that's that's a great point. So onto the topic of hunting strategy too, because there's, there again, a wide array of opinions and there's not one that's particularly right or wrong, but I think in a general sense, you, you know, tell me if you disagree, but it seems like there's a lot of, um, biologist opinions who I highly respect that are all about bringing the most diversity, the most um, uh, quali you know, quantitative, qualitative amount of biodiversity and food sources, and, you know, make it the most attractive property you possibly can with all that, and then figure out how to hunt it. While on the flip side, there's a lot of, um, per, you know, very, very well-known deer hunters, guys who focus on trying to harvest mature deer, the best deer in the area. Um, there's a there's a huge emphasis on why we want to have diversity. We want to orient that structure in a manner that's advantageous for daylight movement for yes. hunting opportunity and i think there's a lot of strategy that gets involved in how you orient and plant things on your property so i mean with that logic in mind um you're not just going across a property and you're just planting everything you know equal squ you know square space across a the property there's there's a little bit more method to your madness so i mean let, let's dive into that a little bit i mean when you assess a property um let, let's go through your thought process from the hunting perspective 
Yeah. So from the hunting perspective, you know, I really want to focus on what they've had success on in the past, if they've been there for a few years and have they had success? That's kind of a key question. But as we start to go through the property, it's also, is this property been clear cut yet? Because, you know, if it's all timber, then we could find the trees. Maybe if we, if we have all red oaks and white oaks, then we can afford to get rid of some of the red oaks. White oaks are more valuable. So knowing the difference and what, you know, what leaf you're looking at to what tree you take is a good point. So that way, instead of, really goes around instead of creating one giant orchard in a property right we can create multiple different designated dropping timed orchards so we can have those staging areas we can have those mid-season spots we can have those late season spots and we can build off the wind around it on the property so that you have multiple stands to hunt and we know you're going to have a food source because again it's a more high quality food source and it's going to provide more long-term, especially you think about this, you know, a lot of the bucks have just ran for days and days in the rut. So if you're able to give them something that's more nutritious than let's say just a normal browse or woody browse, um, it's going to pay dividends for you. And they're going to hang out there more. The doe are going to hang out there more and it's going to bring who you want there. If you're looking to simplify your food plot system while enhancing the quality of your soil, you need to check out Vitalize Seed Company. Vitalize provides top quality seed blends designed to fit into their 1-2 planting system. The system has been designed to allow highly diverse plant species to grow synergistically, optimizing nutrient uptake and cycling the way God intended. Reduce your inputs, build your soil, and maximize the quality tonnage for the wildlife in your area. Find out more about this system and get your seed at vitalizeseed.com. And be sure to check them out on Instagram and Facebook. One of the things I think is really, really hard to depict in food in a in a podcast um, is you're almost we're trying to come up with these scenarios and examples and and be as site specific yeah. as possible. But at the end of the day, it, it it feels almost like a little bit of a cookie cutter situation, and that's not fair to you. But we're trying we'll try to do the best we can. So let's just come up with a couple different scenarios and just walk your walk us through your thought process as far as we can based on the the surrounding habitat type so you talked about you know that has an impact you're going to have uh you know the neighborhood has an impact you know what are the neighbors and the people around you doing so let's just go from a a, like a habitats type that we might see here in pennsylvania so you know first and foremost i'd shared with you before we got rolling here one of the properties that i have the most experience tinkering with and probably the greatest exposure to it is a contiguous deciduous forest mainly uh oak hickory you know it has beech birch maple mixed in with it but it's all the same age forest um very similar as far as uh you know topography elevation change throughout a huge um expanse uh within that the the white-tailed deer's range in that area so with that in mind and you know not a lot of improvements going on there you know that's a very very hard slate to make changes, but you can make some changes. So, um, you know, with something like that, give us a couple ideas of how you would take something like this and include um, the nursery into making a a diverse habitat mix um, on this property. So the place where we'd start, especially if we have like neighborhood pressure, is I'd want to build up some shrub thickets on the outside of the property. That way we can promote more movement and holding as they move onto the property. And then we can look to make our, you know, main food sources I've been talking about, the chestnut, the persimmon, the soft mass stuff, more central to the property if we're able to access it, obviously. Always take that into account too. But if we can build up around the outside of the property, you know, we have different shrubs that do well in wet areas. So those low elevation spots, same with, we have four different swamp white oak crosses. So our bodacious burr, our jack, our morse, and our concordia oaks would do well with shrubs in those lower elevations where we could make our, you know, kill areas, our kill plots, I like to call them, on those higher ridges if we wanted to, if we have access to them. And again, it's all about making movement through the property and not just giving them a one-stop shop where they can kind of window shop on the first two rows of the trees in an actual, like, for instance, we see that in our commercial orchards. The deer don't always go all the way through them. You know, they'll come up the first couple of rows and they'll leave. So if we can make six to eight different quarter acre spots 
and we can put, you know, two groups of eight trees, so 16 trees in each quarter acre, we can really drive a lot of, you know, ability to hold more deer on the property because you're, you're able to feed more deer. And again, it's a more diverse food source versus the typical person around you is probably going to have some apples planted for themselves and the deer know that. But if, again, if you can go with chestnuts, depending on soil type, persimmon, pears, you're going to change the way your property looks to the deer. It's a better source of food and it's reoccurring again every single year for you on that. Um, but building up, story, if the woods is very open, we have great shrub options that you can actually build some understory because, you know, browse is a huge part of deer's diet, obviously. Um, so we have different like thicket plums is one of my favorite. Our chokeberry is another option. And uh, a shrub we'll get into, you know, maybe in later times is our dwarf chinkapin. But it's uh, an acorn bearing shrub that's in two to four years of time it'll produce. And, you know, these different shrubs we have can be in areas like, for instance, our parent ones in Michigan are in areas where they only get sun from 9 to 1 p.m. or, you know, 9 to noon. And they're still producing so much. So it kind of really depends on the layout of the property. You know, obviously, so there's a lot of different options. Um, but you just have to diagnose each area as it is. So we don't want to just go in there and take out all the, you know, all the thicket stuff if it's providing habitat. But we can start to scale away some of it, like with those clear cuts in the region strategy. Let's put some shrubs instead of just focusing all on the region. Because when you put a shrub, for instance, in our, you know, shrub survival kit, the two and a half foot tall tube, the deer can actively browse that shrub as it's growing. And when they do that, they're doing some natural pruning for you. And it's allowing those shrubs to grow more multi-stemmed. So the whole gamut is just creating diversity across the entire property and it just depends on you know how many areas you want to make they don't need to be huge a quarter acre is fine and you know 10 trees on 20 foot centers can cover you know a 4,000 square foot area so you can really knock out a lot with less and then you can really build up you know the shelter and the structure with the shrubs around the outside of the property to hold more deer Right. I, I like that. And I definitely want to get more in depth when it comes to the shrub lands and, and building some of that stuff up. That's definitely a topic. But one thing I want to want to go back to when we were talking about, you know, maybe you've got solid oak forest, uh, that type of thing. So is it yeah. just as simple as maybe you have a, a, a you know, a certified forester come into your property and we create some openings on this property based on their recommendations for quality forestry practices and then start to implement these structures within the trees? Or how are we going to set ourselves up to really ch- change the dynamic of a, of a you know, closed canopy forest with like so many properties we have here? What's going to be our best yeah. way of setting ourselves up for success in ultimately changing the structure within that forest and that land that you have? Yeah, so I feel like a great way, place to start is, you know, is timber investment. You know, if you have some trees on the property that are 20 foot up, no branches, you know, they could be in that veneer quality category, especially if you have things like black walnut, you have uh, the red oaks, things like that will really drive high value dollars for timber. So that can help you reinvest what your property has back into it with, you know, new different trees that are going to actually produce the soft mass, the food for you. Versus, you know, some red oaks that might produce every three years or have the buffer season and then you'll miss them one year. So it really starts with the timber investment and you can go with the Forester. We highly recommend using Foresters. Um, also, there's different, I'm sure, consulting companies around that will help you with the timber sales. But a great place to start is looking for timber quality trees because that's going to just drive money back into your pocket that you can reinvest in your property. And I, let me make sure that we we set the stage and set the expectation here when it comes to forestry. Hire somebody who knows what they're doing, and that is not just the the logging company down the street because I've seen it time and time again yep. where the logging company down the street will take the best and let the rest. And you can really, really, in the long term, shoot yourself in the foot if they don't do what meets your goals and expectations. If your goals and expectations are wildlife habitat and, you know, 
<clears throat> maximizing tree, tree or whatever that is, make sure you're doing it with somebody who understands the ecological diversity and not somebody who's really, really good with a chainsaw. I think it's really important to, you know, have, I, I always say this, wisdom in a multitude of counsel. So you're working with Frank to try to get the best species that you want to create diversity. You're working with a forester who understands the age of your forest and the components of your forest in order to know how to cut it and structure it the way you want. And then you work with a log and, a, and a, somebody who's a fantastic chainsaw operator that can do it quickly, efficiently, and safely. That's, it's really important to use all of that instead of cutting corners and just using one person for multiple tools if they're not the expert. That's such a great point, and that's, that has a lot of value right there. So let's shift gears a little bit, Frank, because one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, and it's one of the things I struggle with the most, is knowing the best scenario for taking back open land a lot of the time it comes to maybe maybe it was uh, in, enrolled in crab crp and it's just you know solid warm season or solid cool season grasses that really aren't offering a ton to the deer herd and local wildlife maybe it's an ag field maybe you own a property that has you know a 50 percent makeup of agricultural land and when you look when you zoom out at your property and you look at the surrounding area there's a lot of ag land there's not a lot of great quality cover to try to hold deer and get them to the next age class so maybe you've got an opportunity to say you know food is not the limiting resource from the perspective of farmland i can produce other sources of food like frank's talking about here that's going to drop throughout the fall hold deer i just need more cover and, yeah. and components to that so one of, one of the things that i've uh argued with and a lot of people this is my opinion i think quality bedding has two components number one it's got security and number two it has browse now there's a lot of people that see this bedding in a bag that you plant and it's just solid warm season grasses there are places throughout the country that that is the best available cover in the area therefore it is bedding in a bag it's the best thing but you take diverse landscapes like we have in you know parts of Pennsylvania where you've got all the staggering canopy and different structure and you put a solid field of grass in there, yeah, deer might relate to it, but it's probably not going to meet the expectation of consistent bedding that you have. And I think the reason for that is they don't have a good quality browse source associated. You know, they want to get up, they want to be able to feel secure in that area, not be yep. seen, but they can browse and they can do that. So with that mindset, you've got a lot to offer in your nursery to try to implement that in field so i'm done rambling let's roll with that what comes to your mind when i you know off of what i just talked about so it just really you know drives it home it's very important to create cover but let's create the right cover like you said if we're gonna let's kill two birds with one stone let's have that summer foliage which we can provide with you know thicket plums you know elderberry hazelnut cranberries uh the dwarf chinkapin i mentioned chokeberry choke cherry any of the dogwoods well, let's, that's also going to give us that value, you know, when all the trees get bare late in the season, we're going to have that cover, right? So it's going to provide, you know, two things for us there, browse and cover. But browse is such a huge component, right? It's just, it's not going to drive the late season daytime movement like a chestnut tree will, but it's going to keep your deer alive, you know, all through the season. And something else I actually didn't mention yet, but, you know, for instance, your property, you said you had some different oaks on it and stuff like that. The oaks and acorns, when they're the only thing to eat, they're a hot commodity. But when you can provide the other, you know, the browse we're talking about, the chestnuts, the persimmon dropping, those acorns become a secondary food source now for the deer herd on your property. So, you know, you're in an area with snow like I am in Indiana, in Michigan especially. Um, the deer acorns can last on the ground for up to a year. So we can play off that and they can dig those up, you know, right now when everything's dead and there's no green on the ground. And then they can attack the other stuff, you know, focus on that first. And that's usually what we see happen is they go after the chestnuts, the persimmon first, and we pull them directly out of those those shrubs we're talking about. You know, a big thing we talk about a lot is creating transitions. And when you have that, you know, more mature timber and woodline, you can create more of a natural edge with our different shrubs we offer. And it hold, as a nice holdup, so as the deer is, you know, coming from a bedding area into, let's say, that transition by a food plot, They'll hold up and feel that comfort we've kind of been talking about where, hey, you know, I, I feel protected, but we might be sitting there if we are hunting a food plot or we're just hunting, you know, a movement, a pinch point nearby. It's going to give you protection in the stand as well. You know, a lot of guys are in elevated blinds 
these days too. So that really helps, you know, cover blinds up because a lot of our shrubs can get into that 12, 15 foot tall, uh, 10 foot wide. So not only creating cover for the deer, but, you know, cover for you on the hunting aspect too. So do more with your shrubs. Just, I always t- tell people, don't rip it all the, all the invasives out right away. You know, if it's the Russian olive, don't take it all out at once because they're using it and they're loving it. But let's scale that back and let's create some different diversity pockets that we can plant on some random centers versus rows that feel more natural to the deer. I really like that. I think that's important. That's highly controversial, but I agree with you. If the best cover, best source that you have on your entire property is something like a Russian olive, that's an invasive plant, um, yeah, we would love to just completely wipe that out and then replace that with something that's better. However, there's a, there's a timeline associated with doing that, and you might be shooting yourself in the foot for a number of years until you, re, you, you change that structure around. While when you do it incrementally, like you're talking about, you can get the best of both worlds. You can maintain what you have and slowly improve upon it with that. Now, one of the things that I, uh, I know you're no stranger to, and neither am I, is we got some places... Um, that have above average deer density, some high deer densities. And when, yeah. you're, when you're talking about implementing some of these highly preferred shrub components within a landscape, let's just say we, uh, let's say we pick a, you know, it's a 10 acre ag field and we're going to convert this, you know, all things considered, we're, we, we're placing things advantageously from where we're going to have hunter access and food plots and bedding locations. But we want to structure it, let's just say a 10 acre field and relate it to your property but we want to convert it. Um, it's there's a little bit more to it than just sticking some shrubs in the ground and then you know waiting five years and boom you've got this wildlife mecca with all these shrubs, especially with a high deer density component. So how do we set ourselves up for success in a situation like that? Yeah, so in that situation, if we're converting a field, which I've done a few of those before, and mix with some like alfalfas and switchgrass and stuff like that to really kind of maximize it, some diversity pockets throughout that 10 acres with those shrubs and some watering holes, um, stuff like that, just to add that bedding value, uh, it can be real advantageous to just throw them out there. But you really need to make sure you put them in some type of tube, for instance, like I keep mentioning. Our shrub survival kit has that two and a half foot tube and we put in cranberries and plums and all that good stuff on hedgerows. You can actively see the deer browsing it every time we check on them. So eventually they just get to the point where they're going to outgrow how much the deer can eat. So you're actively providing more browse for your deer herd, especially in a high density area, but they're not going to be able to eat it to the ground and destroy it. So you're kind of ensuring your success long term by taking the steps up front to protect those. Now, the only, the big thing with caging versus tubing is the wind. Cause any wind over seven miles an hour can actually cause, um, the stop of photosynthesis, which is growth. And it can stop for a week. It can stop for a month. Um, you don't know, but when it stays in that tube, at least up to that two and a half foot, it is in a constant state of growth and continuing to regenerate new branches as they actively browse. So you don't have to wait so long trying to let feed the deer. Typically, you know, we plant these things and we try to keep them away from the deer so that we can feed them later on. <laughs> but in this case, you can actually let them actively browse and be a part of it too. So, you know, there's a lot of factors that play into this next question I'm going to ask you. But if you just look at it on the general scale and the properties and places throughout the country that you work at, what should be my expectation as a landowner for implementation process. I know that there's going to be factors that are going to make it go quicker and there's going to be factors that make it take longer. So, I mean, if you take that, um, all those things into consideration, what do you think of typical ranges from implementation for, you know, go through a lot of your stuff, you know, we, we're, right now we're talking about shrubland component, but there's a lot of other stuff. There's trees and there's yeah. fruit stuff. So, I mean, like give us an idea of, of some of that. So that's a great question. And for instance, all of our trees, and fruit producing besides the oaks produce at three to five years of age. So you can expect a smaller crop in year three. And actually a good tip like for apples, a lot of times we'll see our three-year-old apples produce. You actually want to remove those apples so the tree gets more sugar content to grow taller, but also so you don't have a, a raccoon or something crawling up for that one apple to break it. So it's not as long as people think. It's not like, you know, five to 10 years. It's, it's three to five years of age. You're going to start seeing production with the, the mass. So 
it makes a big difference knowing that. But when it comes to installing, like, let's say I did a plan for you and we laid it out, you know, there's a hundred something, 110 uh, fruit and nut trees and there's 300 shrubs across the whole property. I don't want to just tell you to put all that in at once to make a sale, right? I want to go through and make sure we start with the, the nut and fruit producing trees because they're going to cause the most change in pattern and be the better, more diverse food source. So we would put those in as a phase one approach, the fruit and nut producing trees. Phase two, we would look more to build up those thickets with the shrubs, the transitions, the screens, the thermal beddings, all that good stuff as well with the shrubs. And then we can come back in and continue to add to that process the year after. So typically it's a, I've done, I've done 20 acre properties that have gone from, you know, a five year plan and I've done 2200 acre properties just most recently that they did it all at once. So it, wow. it really comes down to people's patience level as well. I always tell people, how patient are you? Um, but for instance, you made a good point too. I'm currently working on a property in Tennessee. And this property, for instance, there's some areas that are a little wetter than I like, and I'm not sure if all the shrubs are going to do as well as I, I prefer them to. So we're going to sample those areas in the phase one approach when we do the, ch the chestnuts and the fruit trees. That way we can see who thrives or does better because our shrub survival kits and tree survival kits come with a one-year guarantee. So if that shrub doesn't succeed, but let's say the thicket plum is doing very well, we can replace that one and you know double up on the thicket plum. To be more strategic versus just saying, hey, that area looks good. Let's throw a bunch of stuff in there. Mm, I really like that. You're you're uh, you're almost uh, what's the what's the way I want to describe? It? You're almost like uh, taking the temperature of what the what the landscape is going to thrive in the most and then rolling with that with that information rather than just doing a blanket application. Um, yeah, because it's easy for me to think about that. It's easy for me to sit there and say, oh, you know, these five varieties, what you need. You need to put these in, but Mother Nature might not agree. So, you know, let's do a smaller sample size so that we can maximize, you know, your return on investment. Well, sure. And uh, anybody can sit at a computer and look at maps and stuff and they can implement uh, all these great ideas. And it, yeah, it's going to work right on paper, but really the application process, the getting your the, the dirt under your fingernails and applying it. And, you know, th there's definitely changes that have to occur. I mean, the thoughts and, and things that I've done in certain parts of a hunting property have kind of adapted over time just to kind of meet what the landscape has to offer and how the deer respond to it. And that, those are all major, major components to this. But I'm kind of curious, Frank, what are, you know, when you talk about planting trees, shrubs, whatever they are, um, you know, you're talking about, you know, the one example you had with some of the, the, the nut fruit producing trees, three to five years and you're seeing that. But I, I know a lot of people, um, even, you know, maybe they've even bought high quality uh, products, whether it was, you know, from you, you know, not necessarily, I can't say any experiences from you, but let's just say it's a, it's a high quality, well-represented nursery with making recommendations or uh, claims to see the same thing. But maybe it took them seven years, 10 years. It took them way longer, or maybe it was a complete fail. Uh, where, where do you see people fail the most, or where is the approach not completely implemented properly in order to see that level of success? Yeah, and so... A reason I keep pushing the, the survival kit is because we actually see a 92% success rate with that kit. So that's why we feel comfortable, you know, putting a one-year warranty behind it. But you're right. It, it really matters on if it's another nursery, where are they getting their trees from? Do they have their own parent trees? And if they don't, because there's a lot of guys out there that are dealers for us even that are, sell our trees that probably are saying they grow them them themselves, which not knocking them, that's fine. But... We actually have these trees. That's what we've been doing on YouTube a lot is we've been showing the parent trees. So you can actually get an idea of what to expect when this thing gets to maturity. And that's how we can really lock in that age, that three to five years of production. Um, it's not just some claim to get your interest. It is our, the original owner of Morse Nursery went through Michigan State, um, their biology program. And it, it's, it's supported by facts when he first planted them all. And they're all in this cold, hardy environment, and they show these same effects. Now, can things happen? Yes. Like, for instance, on a fruit tree, if it doesn't get pollinated, it's not going to produce. So, and that could be from a, uh, an early frost, where it, it frosts all the, the, the blossoms off. Or maybe there's not be enough bees in your area. So, those kind of factors can also come into play. And also, like we touched on in the very beginning, it, it comes on the soil, too. 
you know, if the tree's not doing well, it's not necessarily you need to do something to the tree. It's something we need to do to the soil around it to provide it with the nutrients it needs to, you know, to be successful. Cause that's usually the biggest thing. So people might put a chestnut in a wetter area, not knowing that that's a, a no, no, obviously. Um, we've talked, touched on that, but the biggest factor in all honesty is a lot of people will put trees in cages because that's how they've always done it or their family's always done it. Mine did it too. And the wind is not going to let that tree grow. For instance, an example is if you have a barn, there are trees on one side and trees on another. One, I bet, I bet you money, one of those trees on either side is going to be taller than the others. And that's because the one side is getting more wind than the other is being protected and able to grow a little better. Mm, great point. And, and a lot of the time when you're talking about planting trees, uh, you know, we, we, it's, it's often stressed that we got to have an open canopy, an open setting, uh, reduce the competition around that so it's at yeah. a maximum potential, which is all important because you need sunshine and water and a lack of competition to promote that. But if you've got that component of your plant that has that disadvantage, it's going to take a little bit longer than probably expected. That's a great point. Well, here's a good rule of thumb, too, when it comes to sunlight. Um, morning is better than evening. And as long as you can get half-day morning sun, you're typically good with fruit and nut-bearing trees. Now, a lot of our shrubs can be, like I mentioned earlier, three hours to five hours of sunlight and do very well, too. But for the, the soft, the mass producers, you need morning sun, at least at least half-day. Full sun is best, obviously. Talk a, I know another thing. We've been... We've been uh pounding uh, fruit and nut producing trees and the shrubland component, all really great points. Um, but you also offer, you know, conifers and, and stuff like that. Um, yeah. I, I, I've got my own opinions of how I like to utilize that stuff. Tell me a little bit about your approach with utilizing conifers across the landscape and how do you find that the best advantageous way in a general sense? Like what, what's the application used for the most in your opinion? So I really like to utilize those for thermal bedding pockets. Um, we sell a lot of them for road screening because they're a great, um, you know, visual and sound screen long term. But they're really good in thermal areas as windbreaks. So doing clusters of we, we stick with Norway spruce exclusively just because they're more kind of deer resistant to browse, especially if you have other food sources in the area, they'll stay off of them. Um, they grow kind of slow in the first couple of years, but four year five, they really set the roots and take off, grow about six to 10 foot in that span. So it's, it's kind of a long-term game, but the benefits are huge. And I know from, you know, listen to a lot of different guys over the years at different hunting shows and things like that, even on public land, typically the best place to start when you're tracking a deer or finding a big deer is near the big spruce trees or some type of water nearby spruce trees. So I really like to implement them into the project. It's not going to be a huge factor driver, you know, versus a chestnut or persimmon in the first five years, but it is going to be a great long-term play if you're looking at like a thermal bedding aspect. Mm, mm. So from a hunting perspective, like an advantageous setup for hunters getting in and out, I mean, um, I've got places on a property that... I physically can't hunt without bumping deer, without them seeing me, hearing me, or smelling me. And uh, they're just really, really hard to hunt. And if I do hunt them, it's going to detriment my property. So tell me a little bit about that. uh... Oops. Hold on a second, Frank. You're good. Okay. Uh, so tell me a little bit about your thought process of taking the products you have, nut producing, fruit producing, stuff like that, and structuring them in a way that does that. I mean, are you looking at mostly saying, you know, from the nut producing, fruit producing trees, is it easier for us to just say, hey, we're going to treat this just the way we would if we were creating an opening with a food plot and let's set that advantageous way? Or is there a little bit more to it than that when you're talking about the array of uh, plant life that you guys offer? Um, so, again, it kind of just depends on application. That's why I really like doing on-site. I do virtual and on-site property designs. And plans. So I like to be on the property so that we can actually kind of diagnose what's really going on. And then we can, you know, implement, you know, what makes the most sense. If there is a wetter area, we know we can plant certain trees in there versus others. And then we can be more strategic, you know, in the game. Because my whole goal in this, 
a lot of guys, and this is how you know, if you're out there looking to buy trees, someone tells you, you know, let's put 300, 400 trees on this acre, and then you'll come back and you'll thin them out. Sounds great, right? It sounds really nice, but until you have to come back and thin them out, it's a mess. So I would rather you guys put, you know, on 20-foot centers, 109 trees on an acre, do it the right way with a survival kit, and make the permanent spot for that tree, and let's never plan to move it. That's kind of our approach on it. So we want to do it the right way. That's why I mentioned doing, you know, sampling. If if my client really wants chestnuts in a certain area, but I don't think it's going to work, you know, we'll send them a free chestnut to see if it grows that first phase. And then, you know, we can implement more in that area. So it really just depends, again, on the property. Where at? Because I'm all the way from um, up in Minnesota down to the Panhandle in Florida, over to Pennsylvania and out to Colorado with these plans. So I'm all over the place. And it really comes down to the location of where I'm at. Like, for instance, Pennsylvania with the elevation, kind of the rockier soils, stuff like that. It really depends on where you're at. And also, what's the client's goal, too? Sure. Tell us, uh, you know, speak, so with that wide range of, of places throughout the country that you're getting to work in, um, you know, sticking to the northeast and Pennsylvania stuff, um, Tell me a little bit about, I mean, you know, be specific within your, your catalog and within your experiences. What are some plants and uh, things you've had really, really good success with implementing? You know, a lot of people, I think, right away, they go, oh, apple trees are the best thing. That's because they've seen <laughs> deer go out to mom and pop's apple orchard. So that's all, sure. that automatically becomes the best thing. I'll never forget I was at a I was at a, a sprayer meeting one time for, for my job in agriculture, and there was a guy there, this old timer, that was telling me that, oh, deer love turnips. That's the best thing you could ever plant, and it's all case by case, right? So, um, you know, there's reasons behind that. But what are what are some things w- with that mindset? Like, what what are some things you probably wouldn't expect, or maybe some uh, sleepers to the general people that you know think about wanting to implement something on your property that would really be a benefit greater than they would expect? And great question again. Uh, you're so right on that with the apple trees. You know, again, the deer are going to eat the food that's on the ground first and foremost. Um, now this list I'm about to give you guys is the top seven food sources that we offer and from our trees. It's not specifically from me. Um, it's, we work with some different guys who used to work with the USDA as biologists and now they work with us as well. And this is what they've seen over their studying time as well. But the number one food source that we offer and that we know of are chestnuts and chestnuts used to be very, very, very everywhere on the East coast you know, a long time ago. And at this point, we actually import almost 20 million pounds of chestnuts a year. So it's something that we can actually grow here and that we don't take advantage of at the moment. But chestnuts are number one because a lot of people aren't going to have them. They're going to have the apple tree. They're going to have, you know, some crab apples. They're going to have some red oaks, white oaks. And those are all great. Don't get me wrong. The deer are going to eat them. And if there's nothing else around, they're going to go to those. But chestnuts, persimmon, and pear are the top three in that order. And then after that's apples, crab apples, white oaks, red oaks. So if we can get chestnuts, persimmons, and pears dropping from August all the way through to January, February, you can ensure you're going to kind of keep those deer t- more towards your property than your neighbors. I always joke around is uh, no one that lives around me knows what I do for a living <laughs> because I don't want them to buy from us and put chestnuts and persimmon on their property. that's that's great well man we've been rolling for quite a while i could probably talk to you for quite a long time because this is all stuff that i'm interested in and there's a lot of value to but i want to break it up incrementally so we're not overwhelming people i'd love to have you back on again maybe talk about some others more specific topics and such like that but um before we get uh you know rolling i know your your time's very important i want to get you get you off to your next thing here um, maybe, what are some things to leave us with or things you might, uh, I might've overlooked in asking you that you'd like to share with people as they think about, uh, making changes on their property this off season into next year season. Yeah, that's a great point. So I'd recommend uh, a few different things right now. We're, we're still taking spring pre-orders for your guys area in Pennsylvania. We usually don't ship you guys until, you know, first, second week of April going into late May. Um, the real goal is to avoid any kind of late spring frost. We want to send you a live tree. We see a lot more success with that. Usually our, our one-year-old trees that are one to two foot tall or our two-year-olds that are two to four foot will get out of that five-foot tube in the first year when planted in mid-April to early May for Pennsylvania. 
Um, another thing to really think about is what areas can you create on your property that are a quarter acre in size that are going to help you maximize locations, create another food plot, but as well as create a tree plot with the chestnuts, the persimmon, um, the pear. Um, and something not to forget about, we've touched on a lot, are shrubs. Um, shrubs, I think, are, are overlooked a lot. But, again, cr- you can create a summer foliage browse, which browse, again, is a huge part of their diet. And you can also generate cover late in the season that is going to be very detrimental or very helpful, I mean, to drawing more deer on the property, holding them, and they can transition into your late season food plots. So um, those are just a number of things to think about. I appreciate you having me on, man. I also wanted to mention that uh, for all the podcast listeners, we're going to actually do a website code, promo code for you guys. Um, any order, if you guys use Woodsman 10, you'll get 10% off um, anything on the website. And the website is morsnursery.com. Just wanted to offer that to you guys as well. Man, I appreciate that. And guys, you know, take a look at the at the website. Take a look at what they have to offer. And uh, yeah, that's a that's an awesome opportunity for you to, to tinker around and, and try to stuff. But like I said, I would uh, definitely preface that by saying make sure you, you, you talk to Frank, you talk to somebody else within that to try to fit the best case scenario for your property. Uh, talk to people with experience that you set yourself up for success. Um, yeah. Another thing too, Frank, I believe if I'm not mistaken, you're going to be at the Great American Outdoor Show here at the beginning of February. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. So if you guys listening are interested in, you know, getting your property virtually or, or planned actually physically on site, I will actually be at the, we've been there for the last 10 years, the Great American Outdoor Show, one of the best shows in the country. If you're in Pennsylvania, you got to go because everywhere else is not as good as the show. I, it's 11 days long, I believe, 11 to 12 days long. Um, I'll be there every day. So if you are interested in getting like a property planned, uh, come talk to me personally. We can get you on the right track to kind of diversify your property and take it to the next level. Yeah, that's a great opportunity for you guys to meet and talk about uh, you know what opportunities you have in your property. Uh, Frank, again, I thank you for uh, for spreading your knowledge, sharing us a little bit about your nursery, sharing your products and how you implement them. I think it's a really great opportunity. This is the time of year I love to be thinking about what's the next step. What am I going to do to improve my hunting, improve my property, um, all the long-term approach stuff that I, I like to do. So I, I really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to share us your experience and, and everything going on. And uh, hey, hopefully we can connect at the show and we'll talk to you soon. That works, man. Thanks so much.